Well, 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 good morning, church. How are you guys? Okay. Well, I'm more excited than you, I can tell you that. I'm sure you're excited, but I'm more excited because this week uh, we walk into a week where in our church's annual calendar and our church, not just meaning mosaic, but kind of the, the church of today, in our annual calendar, we walk into a week where we are remembering and celebrating and engaging in and exploring and being in awe of uh, events that took place on our planet that in all of human history period uh, are the most significant events that have ever taken place in human history. And they took place in a week that we look back on and go, that week more happened and more significant things happened than at any other time in all of human history. Wow! That's insane! And we get to come and explore those realities as they relate directly to us, not just a historical remembering, but a present beauty because God did not only affect those events, but he recorded them and put them forth so that we would have space to be able to go back uh, in these recordings and go, wow, this is what happened. And this is why it matters so much to us. So that's what we get to do today. And, and when we explore uh, this week and the events of this week, both today and next weekend, as we enter into the Holy Week that uh, plays into uh, that beautiful redemptive week where God uh, brought forth his redemptive plan in his life, death, and resurrection, uh, we get to do that here together through exploring either the teeny tiny details of the story because in every teeny tiny detail, there is a shout of both the glory of God and the intent of God to declare himself our King and Lord. So we could, as we've many times in years past done, just pick one teeny detail out of the events of this week and spend the entirety of this year on that detail. And then other times, we are equally in awe if we just take a step back and we look to the whole unfolding story, uh, not ignoring the details, but not focusing on them. Because in the big unfolding story and the layers and layers and layers and layers of things that were going on, we there too see the shout of the glory of God and his declaring himself Lord and King. And so today we will explore uh, at, a, at a distance the, the big unfolding reality and all that was unfolding there. Recently, I got to watch the new Spider-Man movie. Uh, some of you are like, oh, the stupid superhero movies. And some of you are like, woo, I love those. And I don't care which camp you land in because I love the superhero movies and loved going to watch it because... Uh, they are epic in nature always. There's great uh, uh, war between the good and the evil, and uh, there are powers involved beyond us. And I'm like, oh, it's so fun. And this last Spider-Man movie, the obsession that our entertainment culture has right now on the multiverse, you know, that there's lots of universes and it's all playing out. You see
see it in lots of movies right now. It played into the new Spider-Man movie. That's what's fun about comic books is we can imagine uh, fantastical things that don't actually exist, but we can make them exist in comic books. And that's beautiful. And so we go into those spaces like, let's imagine together. And so in this particular movie, um, because of the multiverse, uh, multiple Spider-Mans came into this Spider-Man movie from other Spider-Man movies, universes, I'm sorry, and, and multiple uh, villains from multiple Spider-Man movies universes uh, came into this movie universe. And so at a cert- as the movie continued, more and more layers of other worlds came in. And by the time you get toward the end of the movie, you're like, everyone's here. <laughs> Every villain, Every Spider-Man, and now the moment comes that you wait for, the great and epic battle, bigger than anyone before it, because they're all here. It was awesome. It was awesome. Uh, You know, you see this a lot of times in all epic versions of movies, the Lord of the Rings, the Narnia movies. There's always that building toward a space where finally everyone's on the battlefield. You know what I'm saying? The gathering of the all. And, and, And when you get to a movie in that space, you just sort of sit back and go, this is it. I mean, this is where it all goes down and there's going to be someone who's left standing and we kind of know it's Spider-Man, but kind of, I'm not sure because these days they kill off even the heroes. And so now you're a little nervous and it's beautiful. This week that we're stepping into, this week that we are celebrating, the events that took place when this week actually unfolded on this planet, uh, it is a week like that where all the kingdoms showed up in a big way, all the powers showed up in a big way. It was the week where all of it came together. We forget sometimes because the events seem fairly ordinary. You know, Jesus was doing this and that and this, and then he died and then he rose from the dead. Those weren't ordinary, but you know, the week as it unfolded forward. But we forget that this week was the week where all that had been unfolding uh, for a very long time, but specifically in the lifetime of Jesus on this planet, those 33 years, this week was where the kingdoms showed up with their plans and their strategies, and they were vying to get ready for what they believed and thought would be the end. Jesus coming with his kingdom and his power to walk in and declare himself Lord and rescue us. The kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of hell, very present this week, very much strategic, very much intent on believing that as God would make himself perhaps more vulnerable than imaginable, it might be the one space in which the ultimate dream of the kingdom of darkness would be realized, the death of the king. And the kingdom of this planet was vying all over the place. You had Rome who was intent on holding their power, uh, especially when little rebellions rose up that had the potential to become big rebellions. And they were like, we squash these things when they're small so that we don't have to squash them when they're big. And you had the uh, institutionalized religious Jewish institutions that had gotten so distant from what they were tasked to protect the prophecy of a Messiah that they were now protecting their institution from that Messiah. 
How crazy. But that was their little pie. And they were vying to get rid of this dude who was disrupting their religious institutions. And you had the followers of Jesus seeing with some clarity that he was indeed the Messiah, the one sent who would set up his throne. And they were so excited following him to see how this would all play out. And this week, they all show up right here. And we walk into this week. So this week unfolds in its details uh, in uh, multiple places uh, through the Gospels. Uh, the book of Luke probably most just chronologically unpacks the realities of the unfolding events of this week. And what I love uh, about the Bible, especially our Bibles, is that the people that put all these together and translated them, they thought it would be helpful for us to put little titles above each paragraph to say, the next story you read is about Zacchaeus, and the next story you read is where he tells this parable. And when we are doing a big picture sweep over, those become very helpful because we don't have to read three chapters of scripture here, we can kind of buzz through and go, here's what happened there. And then here's what happened there. So we can begin to get a scope of what was unfolding both in the visible and the invisible spaces of this particular week and what more importantly, God was up to. So uh, Jesus in Luke chapter 18, uh, we see the beginnings of the story unfold as he's traveling up toward Jerusalem. Uh, the timing of his travels up to Jerusalem, and you're welcome to turn to Luke 18, 19, 20 is where we're going to be a little bit, but uh, let me just say you're welcome to sit and listen because we're going to roll fast and we're going to touch uh, on a quick uh, couple spots and everything you're going to need, you can hear. So please feel free to read along. Please feel free just to sit back and just to watch the story unfold because sometimes that is our better way. Uh, and so uh, Jesus is rolling toward Jerusalem. The timing is unique because it is the time of year where they are celebrating Passover. Passover was a celebration that the Jewish people celebrated in their annual calendar to remember and celebrate and stand in awe of and explore the great rescue that God effected for his people, the Israelites, from their slavery in Egypt a very long time before that. And particularly it's called Passover because in that event, as the plagues that God had affected on Egypt, uh, as he uh, quietly said to them, let my people go. This doesn't go well for you if you don't. And they were like, no, 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 no. Uh, at the end of those plagues, there was one where the angel of death would come and he would come and take life from each household, in particular, the firstborn son that represented the future of that household. So this wasn't just taking the firstborn son. It was a display of what death does. It takes all of what is future and it robs you of it and says, no, you have no future. This is the depths of death, right? So the angel of death is coming and the people of Israel were told, if you take the blood of a lamb and paint it on your doorpost, then the angel of death will pass over your home and death will not come to your home. Life and freedom will be yours. And now in hindsight, we realize how deeply God was tying his grand rescue of the human race through the Lamb of God, Jesus, to this. But at that time, they were celebrating that Passover, God's rescue of them. And in the prophetic unfoldings of the Old Testament, the people of Israel knew that there would one day come one, a Messiah, a second Moses, 
a one who would ultimately rescue his people, not just from one nation and one circumstance, but from all the nations and their oppressions because the people of Israel had been oppressed over and over again by nations since Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome, just to name a few, right? So, so they're like, one day, there's one coming who will set up his throne in Jerusalem. He will overcome all the other nations. He will set us up by his side and we, the people of Israel, will rule with him over the other nations and that will bring peace to the earth because his power and his authority will bring submission to the nations and there will be peace. What a thing to look forward to. And now Jesus had been on the planet for long enough teaching uh, and doing ministry for long enough, a couple of years that he'd been teaching that there was a giant crowd and the word had gotten out. We are very sure, though perhaps not 100%, but very sure that this is in fact the one we have been waiting for, the second Moses, our Messiah, our Redeemer, the one who will set up his throne, uh, David's throne, and he will reign forever. And Jesus, at the end of this couple of years of teaching, is now making his way to the city of Jerusalem right at the time of Passover. You're doing the math and you're like, oh, this is it. Like, would you not want to be there when he rolls in and with supernatural power like the days of old stands before Rome and the Jewish institutions of power and brings them to their knees and reigns on his throne and calls his people home. I want to be there. And so there's a crowd following him. And all along the way and the events that take place that lead us into this week, we see him unapologetically beginning to declare that what they thought was true, that he was the one, is in fact true. Uh, on his way up to Jericho in chapter 18 of the book of Luke, there's a blind man on the road. Uh, he cries out, Jesus heals him. It wasn't random. Uh, in years past, we've covered that detail, how God was declaring what he was coming to do. He rolls into Jericho. There's a little guy in a tree named Zacchaeus, chief tax collector, and, and Jericho was the gateway to Jerusalem. There was a path that headed from Jericho up to Jerusalem. In his entry into Jericho, uh, he encounters Zacchaeus and we watch him take the very nature of what Rome has done to his people, turning them against their own people, infecting them with the need to serve Rome, the chief tax collector, and he reverses and redeems what this world has done. And we watch him declare through the story of Zacchaeus, I am here here to save my people. If you were there, you'd be going, <laughs> now the people watching the Zacchaeus thing at first were like, he's with sinners again. But that was a group of people that were very suspect of Jesus. He leaves Jericho and he rolls up into Jerusalem, goes through some towns. And just before he enters Jerusalem, Jesus does something extraordinary. He gets with his disciples in Luke chapter 19, which we'll read in a second. And he says to two of them, listen, uh, I need you to go into town. Uh, you're going to find this colt or this donkey. Uh, it's tied up. Uh, you're going to untie it and bring it to me because it is a donkey that you will find right here. And no one has ever sat on that thing. And it needs to come here. And if anybody says to you, what are you doing with the donkey untying it? You just say, my Lord needs it now. And they will apparently leave you alone. It's in the Bible. I'm not making it up. 
And so they go in to do that. And, and here's what we begin to see with such clarity that we've been seeing, but we begin to see it in a way that is so precise and so declared that we cannot escape it. That as Jesus enters Jerusalem, there was no event taking place that he walked into and it happened to him sort of accidentally. And then he kind of made the best of it. You know, like he wasn't coming into Jerusalem and someone said, you look tired. Would you like to get on this donkey? And he's like, sure, that sounds great. And then when he got on the donkey, people were like, it's the king. And they started worshiping him. And he was like, oh, wow. Nothing went down like that. Everything Jesus did, you start realizing this is written. Like he's doing it, man. Like he's got a plan, so he's up to something. He is making declaratory statements through the things he's doing. He is tying to prophecy. He is declaring himself the one as people believe that he is, and he's doing it unapologetically. I also think it's pretty insane when you start looking at it to begin to realize how much God was involved in writing a story that had layers and layers and layers going on before we ever realized it. Because think about this. Here's a cult that Jesus says no one has ever sat on. It's a fully grown animal. Somehow for years, that animal has been in a place where no one has been able to sit on it. I don't know that story. It's not in the Bible. When I die, that's another one on my list. Tell me about the donkey. Because while Jesus started teaching years before, no one perhaps even yet knew who he was. Somewhere in Jerusalem, a donkey was born and God preserved that animal for this day so no human would sit on it so that his prophetic nature of his lordship would be made known. And I'm like, whoa, you know how many things God was doing in the spaces of invisibility that we encounter in a moment. There was a donkey, no one sat on it, great fun. Like, do you know what it takes to keep a donkey from anyone sitting on it? I don't know either, but God did for years. So that at the moment that Jesus needed to declare himself Lord in a prophetic way, the donkey was ready. And that should give you a sense of God's absoluteness in everything. And we're not even start, getting started yet. So they go, they get the donkey and they return with the donkey. Apparently either no one asked why you're untying it or if they did, they said the secret sentence and they were left alone. Another story on my list of things I'd love to know more about. But here's what unfolds in scripture as the donkey returns. So it says, uh, and they brought it, the donkey, or cult to Jesus. This is in chapter 19, verse 35. And throwing their cloaks on the cult, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is where the palm branches came into play. The people were spreading their cloaks and palm branches along the road as a prophetic declaration of their affirming that they believed who he was. Hence, we call this 
Palm Sunday. If you're ever wondering, is that a Florida thing? I'm like, no, it's all around the world, even in places that have never seen a palm tree. And that is because in this event, part of what occurred was they'd lay their cloaks down and they'd lay palm branches down as the donkey rode because it was a prophetic declaration of who they knew he was. It was an act of worship reserved only for the one who would be the Messiah. You'll see this play out in a second. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude, that's a crowd, giant crowd of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that he had done and that they had seen. So now they're like, they're beginning to declare uh, verbally, we have watched you, we have seen you, we have heard you, we believe you. You are our Messiah. You are the son of David. You are the one. And they're just declaring this and rejoicing, saying, look at this, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, finally, and glory in the highest, finally. So they're now declaring the peace of heaven is where? It's coming here. It's right here. He's going to go in Jerusalem. He's going to set up his throne. Peace has come. He is the king. And so this is what happens. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, to Jesus directly, these are those suspect of Jesus, part of the institution, out of either zeal or political power, trying to navigate the story and protect the institution. And they say, oh, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Rebuke them. Why? Because they recognized with clarity what these people were declaring. It wasn't just like a, you're awesome. It was, you are the Messiah, which was blasphemy if he was not the Messiah. So a typical rabbi who had become really well known, if his people crossed a line and started worshiping him as savior instead of as teacher, then it was his job to rebuke them and say, I ain't no savior kind of like today, right? If, if you all start believing that I or any of the pastors here have the power to save you with our articulate words or our incredible wisdom, you are in for a deep and terrible disappointment because we ain't no saviors. We're in the same boat you're in, struggling with the same stuff you're struggling and saved by the same savior you're saved by. And so the rabbi would then say, no, 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 this has gone too far. You are worshiping me as something I am not. <laughs> Jesus says this to the Pharisees. It'd be one thing to say, no, it's okay, they're good. But he goes this, this moment is a moment in which I I'm establishing for this kingdom who I am and establishing my authority. So if the people were not worshiping me, this moment was going to be this moment one way or the other, because then the inanimate objects would start doing it. The rocks would start worshiping me. What Jesus was not saying is if people don't worship me, the rocks will. He was saying this, 
this moment, this event with this donkey that was preserved for this long for me to ride into this city to come and do this thing, I promise you at this moment, it was written that the declaration of who I am would happen if it was the rocks that had to do it. So if I rode in and there were no humans to worship and declare me the son of David, don't worry, because the rocks would do it because there was no version of this story in which this moment wouldn't include me establishing my kingship and my lordship. I am the king of kings. I am the Lord of lords. And it's happening right here, right now. Rocks or humans, doesn't matter. I didn't say all of that, but it's all in there. I'm not going to tell them to stop, because if I do, rocks will start worshiping. It'll get weird. <laughs> so he rides into Jerusalem, declared the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Son of David, the one who will reign. And rightly the people, as I would have if I were there, they begin to put it all together. They look at prophecy and they're like, he's coming to establish his throne because that is what it seemed he was doing. He was declaring now a coming in and overcoming. And then events take place. You can watch them unfold in chapter 19 of the book of Luke and into chapter 20. Uh, first he comes into Jerusalem and the first thing we see happen is that he weeps over his people. The compassionate second Moses, the compassionate Messiah looks at his people and what sin has done to them. And he grieves what has happened to them and he grieves the power of sin and he grieves their brokenness and he grieves their rebellion and he grieves where they're at as one who is coming to say, I'm not simply here to set up my authority because it's fun to be authoritative. I am here to bring my authority to save my people. What we could not have imagined is that the definition of my people would expand past Jews into Gentiles also. Not yet. So he weeps over his people. And then right after that, as the story unfolds in chapter 19, he goes into the temple and he clears house, tips tables over, teaches and says, enough, enough, my house. Whose house? My house, Jesus says declaring himself once again, like, you want to know who just walked in here? It's the guy that owns this house. So no apologies there. And what's been going on in this house got to stop. And he clears house and we begin to watch him do what? Declare again himself. Oh, I'm back and I'm home and I'm coming. I'm clearing house because I'm preparing my people to be the people they need to be to reign with me. And so we see him establishing his kingdom, establishing his kingship and cleaning house. And then he teaches uh, about a couple of different things that are, that are incredible. And he, he's starting to show some stuff. And right before he does that in chapter 20, it starts with this. Jesus is authority tested. That's the title. Because now we watch the kingdoms start showing their faces. The kingdom of this earth, divided as it always is, stands now in that little kingdom of Jewish leaders preserving the Jewish institution come and they test his authority. Who are you really? What are you doing? This is not okay. And Jesus stands in his authority and does it unapologetically. And then he teaches parables that kind of, you you sort of like, wow. He's basically saying, you do not want to be in a kingdom that isn't mine. 
because this is not going to go well for all the other kingdoms, mine and mine alone, my kingship and my lordship alone. So here, here's the deal. And then, he, and then he talks about this world and paying taxes to Caesar and like, this world is a nothing gift to this world. What is this world? So you don't need it. It doesn't matter because now my kingdom comes. So if you're human on that planet at that time watching this, you are looking to the weekend and going, big power coming, Jesus establishing his throne. If you are watching from the heavenly places, though we don't have much by which we can extract what was going on there, we have some. And so we can take the sum and go, uh, we can wonder about what it might have been like from that vantage point. Jesus finally entering Jerusalem. The final days have begun. Did the angels fully grasp the crucifixion and what was coming? Don't fully know, but we know that they didn't know all things because the scripture reveals at times that they long to look into things. So we know they must be watching with some sense of wonder and wondering like us, different than us because they knew more than us, but watching and going, this is that week. All these years with him on the planet comes to this. What is invisible to us, not to them, watching the powers of darkness start coming together that week. We know from events from that week that will happen this weekend when Jesus is in the garden, for example, that Satan himself and his dominions were there scheming and strategizing to bring down the kingdom of God. So this week, the kingdom of earth watching with vantage point that is limited Divided as always, hostile toward Jesus, totally enamored with him so he can give us what we want. The kingdom of heaven standing and watching going, wow, I wonder how deep this goes before he is finished with his work. And the kingdom of darkness saying, if he gets vulnerable, we take him and then we take them. Wow. And all this unfolding as the week goes, if you were the people following Jesus, I've said this before many times, you had an assumption that Jesus was here to establish his kingdom and you had no imagination that he was here actually to die to save the human race. And you've heard me say that beautiful kind of collision that would happen, what, what the people thought was happening, here it is. He's establishing his throne, his kingdom, his kingship, his lordship. That's not quite what he was doing yet. He was actually coming to make himself totally vulnerable to take on our sin and rise from the dead and save us. But I see more now, as we all do when we journey through these stories over and over again. It's not that he was doing one but not the other. It's not that he was saying, I'm not establishing my kingdom yet. I've got to do the rescuing here first. And then I will come another time and, and establish my kingdom. Yes, his throne on earth, not yet. But his kingdom and his lordship and his kingship actually got established here. Now, don't get me wrong. It doesn't mean it wasn't true before that. Oh, it's always been true. Because before the foundations of time itself, who reigned? He reigned, but to come and to declare it so, to demonstrate it so, to show all the kingdoms in heaven, in hell, and on planet earth. Oh, 
I am king indeed and impenetrable in every way. Guess when he established that once and for all? Not in some future that we're waiting for, but right here in this week, because what he was actually doing was both things simultaneously. He was establishing his lordship, his power, and he was rescuing us through his death and resurrection simultaneously. Wow, Renaud, that's, that's a lot of guessing. No, no, it's not. Because I try very hard never to guess on this stage. Because <laughs> I got to answer to one if I guess on this stage. So if I'm going to make statements like that, it's because they are somewhere here. We're in a letter right now that Paul wrote to a church in Philippi many years after these events took place. And in that letter, he says something that we've heard a thousand times, I've heard a thousand times, but always known they're connected to this week, never having fully seen the beautiful power of this connection. So in Philippians chapter two, where we've been, and now I've had the privilege to unpack in detail these realities and all the meanings of this particular space, listen to what it says. Paul is writing actually to us, well, to the church in Philippi, and consequently later then we are the recipients about how our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, right? And then he says this, look, he says in, uh, in verse five, have this mind among yourselves, chapter two, verse five of Philippians, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in human likeness, the likeness of men. So what events are we talking about here? His coming to planet earth and becoming flesh and blood. You with me? Any confusion about that? No, because it's written right here uh, very clearly. And then he says, and being found in human flesh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So what events are we talking about here? I mean, this is a one event. It's not events, one event. It's this week, what we celebrate this week, coming at the end of this week, his actual death, the most from our vantage point, vulnerable moment of God himself, right? A moment that his enemies and the kingdoms against him would see as tremendous opportunity. In his most vulnerable, he would be this week. And here it's saying, Jesus did this. This was his attitude to save us. But look what comes next. Then he says this. Therefore, there's the big word, because of this death and resurrection, this humility, this rescue, because of that. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above how many names? Every name. So listen now. This week, it is no accident that Jesus was declaring throughout the week his authority and his power and his lordship and his kingship over this world and all worlds, because we would think you do that when you establish your throne, but he was doing that because what would establish his name as the name above all names would not be the throne of David in Jerusalem, which is yet to come, but it would actually be the cross itself and his vulnerability 
and power in vulnerability still more than all power combined. And so here we hear, oh no, no, the confusion was not that he was not here this week to establish his lordship as Lord of Lords, his kingship as King of Kings. It's just that we thought it would include the throne of David at that juncture. We could not have fathomed it would happen by the cross. See, I think we today, where we miss the boat, I miss the boat, is we see this week as the celebration of his rescue of us and one to come in the future where he will establish his lordship, where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. We see that as a future event and this past as a a rescue. While the people there thought he was doing the future event. Turns out he was doing both that week. The throne that will come is an inevitability because he has established his name above every other. Oh, it's not done. Sorry. (laughs) That'd be cool. But Paul goes further. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. How many knees will bow? All of them. Will he stand alone as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Absolutely. And then we're back in our humanity going, every human throughout human history, whether hostile toward God or not, will bow their knee to his authority. And Paul's like, yes, but it's bigger than that. Every knee of all human history will bow, but some other knees will bow along with us. Look, every knee should bow where? In heaven and on earth, kingdom number two and kingdom number three and under the earth. All the kingdoms present this week vying for position would find at the end of the week after his death and resurrection that for all their effort, it would end here that their knees would bow to the king of kings And the Lord of Lords, listen, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we walk into a week where we celebrate soon toward the end of the week together the wonder of his rescue of our souls, our lives, our freedoms, our future. We celebrate his death and resurrection and we stand in awe that we have a savior who came to save us. That's what this week is about. And most often that is all this week is about in many ways. This week is about him being our savior because our safety, our security, our freedom, our future is absolutely what it is because he is our savior. If he is not our savior, we have no future. We have no safety on this deadly planet with a deadly eternal future outside of Christ. We have no security. We have no freedom. We are vulnerable in every way, like little rats in a cage trying to survive only to find out we're dead to start with. Wow, Renault, that's terrible. It's just true. But Jesus, because he saved us, 
We are none of those things if we are found in him and believe in who he is. But listen now, here's where it gets crazy. Pay close attention because that's not the point. We already do that every year this week. Here's the point. The reason we are truly secure, truly safe, truly free, and truly have a future is not only because he is our Messiah, but because he is a Messiah that is impenetrable, a Messiah that is absolutely, totally, and completely the only one in power. Because if we had a Messiah that was in any way anything but the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the sustainer and creator of all things, the only one who holds all power and every power and the one to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess, if he was anything less than that, it wouldn't matter that we had him as a savior because his vulnerabilities would be our vulnerabilities. But he has how many vulnerabilities? Zero. Zero. And so our safety is that we have a Messiah that rescued us, who also made it clear that he is not any Messiah. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And at the name of Jesus, our knees will bow, whether in awe as his children or in fear as his enemies. But they will bow nonetheless. No one will stand against my King, my Lord, and my Savior. And so, hence the declaration out of Scripture, if he is for you, if he is your savior, then who is it that could stand against you? No one. And though this planet is deadly and will feel like everything is against you, when time completes, what he declared this week, what he made clear this week in his king, kingship and lordship, will ultimately be our complete and total safety. What a Messiah we have. So this week as you buzz around, don't get so busy. Don't get so caught up in the news and the work and the kids and the space and the relationships that you wait around till Friday to celebrate your Messiah. No, no, no. This week, every day, stop in your day, in your morning, in your evening, somewhere, stop and say these words to your soul. King of kings, Lord of lords, that is what you made clear this week. So I stand in it. Jesus, you and you alone, I bow my knee and I stand free in you. Can't wait to celebrate your rescue of my soul, my good king. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for what is coming at the end of this week where we get to celebrate the most extraordinary and unthinkable and unimaginable thing that a human being could even try to imagine but never will, that you, our King, Creator, and Sustainer, did not come here to stand and reign over us, though you do all of that. 
but you actually came to become like us, die for us, and rescue us. God, we can't wait to walk once again into that beautiful remembrance and stand in awe of your death and vulnerability that even while you were vulnerable, you were impenetrable. <laughs> Conqueror at your weakest, at least what we perceived in our humanity as weak. Oh God, that you in that established without question this truth, that your name is above all other, your power above all other, unmatched and total and complete and sovereign, and that to you our knees and everyone else's in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bow. What a Savior we have. What a King we serve. What a safety and security we stand in. So this week, God, as we wait for Friday to come to celebrate your rescue, would you, would you come, Spirit of God, in our hearts, and would you make your name, Jesus, bigger this week than it's ever been for us. Show us how safe you are because of how sovereign you are, how majestic you are, how powerful you are. So, my king, this week I bow my knee and seek to know more of your power as I see more of who you are so that come Friday, when I see you in your death, I see you both as my Savior and my King. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.